There is a special grace that comes with people that go into new places with the explicit purpose of evangelism. And God just gives them a miraculous power that people don't otherwise have. All right, grace and peace, everyone. Good to be with you all. So there's a, there's a person that some of you will recognize his name. His name is Richard Feynman. How many, does anybody know the name Richard Feynman? Handful of people do. So he was a, uh, I think, one of the most impressive minds of the 20th century. He, he won the Nobel Prize in physics. He, he was the one who united quantum mechanics with general relativity. And for that contribution, he won the Nobel Prize. But he made contributions all, all, in, all over the place in many different disciplines, many different fields. And to illustrate why I think he was one of the two most brilliant people of the 20th century, I think it was Einstein and Feynman, in my opinion, who were the two most impressive people. He would, he would look at these constructions from geometry. So those who took geometry remember when you have to like make a a pentagon with just like a ruler and a compass. You remember doing those kinds of exercises where there's a, there's a way in which you're supposed to do this in the minimum number of operations. And like, you know, how many steps can you, can you do uh, an octagon or bisect something, uh, a particular geometric figure? People have been doing this for thousands of years since the time of the Greeks. And, uh, and they're pretty well developed and settled. Well, so Feynman comes on the field, who's not a mathematician, he's a physicist. And he looks at these and he says, wait a minute, you all think you can do these in 14 steps, I can do them in 11 steps. And he took the whole field that was, wasn't even his field and like revolutionized this in a matter of like months. And he would just like turn to all these fields and completely upend them because he was just like off the chart, ridiculously brilliant. So uh, he was a professor where I went to college and in, in, at Caltech. And uh, I was taking some classes at Caltech when I was in high school and he died while I was in high school before I took physics. He used to teach the, the physics class there. At Cal he died while I was in high school, and I felt so robbed. And, and so I would, I would sit in this, like Caltech, the school I went to, everyone had to do two years of physics, and, um, and I would sit in the same lecture hall where he used to be up there doing all this and thinking, like, I really got robbed here. I wanted Feynman as my teacher. And... Uh, of course, he, was, he had passed away. Well, I would, I would sit there. I remember sitting there often longing to see him. Well, this was before the internet. This was, this was the early 90s. The web had not come out yet. But somebody told, me, somebody told me that there was a videotape of him doing at least some of the lectures in the library. And I was like, no way, a videotape? And so um, some of you remember what a VHS was, like those little old VHS. So I used to go, I'd go to the library and I would watch these things again and again, thinking like, I get to get my, my revenge here and get to at least watch Feynman on video, and, and I would, and, and I was not disappointed. The way that he understood physics and could explain physics was, was amazing. There, there are these opportunities that come few and far between to learn from really, really impressive people. Today, we're gonna get to learn from Jesus, the true master fisher 
on evangelism, okay? So we're going to learn from him directly how he teaches evangelism. And as we open up, I want you all to remember that Jesus makes this promise that one of the, the characteristics of being a disciple is that you would be a fisher of people. And I think he means a successful fisher for people or fisher of men. Today, as he now, as the pastor we're going to look at, he's called his disciples, he's called his 12, and he's going to get them on this path of being fishers of people. Okay, so as we begin, I want you just to assess maybe your own evangelistic success that you've had in the recent months, year or so, and ask, how is it going with me? Am I struggling? Am I flourishing? Has my fishing been a flop? Or do I have something to, to show for it? Okay, so with that, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to be referring to this pretty much the whole time, so try to keep your your fingers or your devices locked into this. We're looking at Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 15. Matthew 10, 5 to 15. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. And do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs. For a worker is worthy of his food. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that here in this sermon, this extended sermon that Jesus gives us, where he commissions his disciples, that we get to learn invaluable principles of what the beginning of of Jesus' commission looks like to all of us. I pray that you would help us to, to understand and more importantly to do what these verses say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so we have talked a lot about the, the diptych of Matthew 4.23 to 9.35. I won't go over all that again, but it's this two-paneled structure. The left-hand side is the kingdom of God proclaimed. And the right-hand side is the kingdom of God demonstrated. The left-hand side is the kingdom of God as expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. And the right-hand side is this gallery of miracles that Jesus performs arranged in those three groups of three that are interwoven with instructions on discipleship. Okay, and then right after the diptych, hopefully we remember the structure here, Jesus looks at the people with compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And we talked a lot about how Jesus was moved by compassion, not by apathy or by disdain. And 
we talked about the reasons for his looking at people with compassion is because they didn't have a shepherd and because they were mangled and helpless or harassed and helpless. Okay, so what he does is he then calls his disciples to pray for workers to go into the harvest field. Uh, and prayer is the first activity that he, he calls his disciples to because there is a deficiency not of money, not of ideas, but of workers. The primary deficiency in the kingdom is workers. And it's, it's people. And Jesus then puts into action his solution to the plight of all these shepherdless people, which is calling the 12 disciples uh, and launching them out into ministry. So Jesus is going to remedy the shepherdless state of the people by putting his own leaders into the field, the, the 12 apostles. In Matthew's gospel, there's five main speeches that are in the book. And there's a lot of significance to that, to these five main speeches. Uh, one clear parallel is Matthew presents Jesus as the new Moses, as the new and greater Moses. Moses has five books in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Jesus has these five major speeches that he gives in Matthew. So the first speech is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And the second speech is here in Matthew 10. It has a bunch of different names. It's not as consistent as the Sermon on the Mount is referred to, but one, one title that it has is the Sermon of Commissioning. So it's the sermon that all of his disciples receive as he launches them out. This chapter, chapter 10, this long speech, is divided into three sections. Okay, so uh, I'm going to use a, a scheme from someone named Dale Bruner, who everyone agrees there's three divisions here, though. But he, he says that the first section is travel instructions. That's verses 5 to 15. Verses 16 to 23 are trouble instructions. And then 24 to 42 are trust instructions. And we'll see, it actually holds up really cleanly, this division. So travel instructions, trouble instructions, and trust instructions. Those are the three divisions of Matthew chapter 10. And every section ends with, in the New King James, assuredly I say to you. So did you see that? How it says in verse 15, assuredly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for that land, for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And I want you just to set your eyes on it. Can you see how in the rest of Matthew 10, there are similarly these little placeholders there to demarcate these these structures. So again, if you look in verse 23, you'll see, assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And then in verse 42, he says, uh, Jesus says, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. So those are the three markers that divide up this these three. So we're going to do one section per Sunday here and walk through that in, in that progression. Okay. So, as I said, we're focusing on that first section, which is travel instructions, right? Travel, trouble, trust. So we're going to do just travel instructions today of this Sermon of Commissioning. All three are under that, he that heading of this Sermon of Commissioning. Okay, so verse 5 opens up with kind of a surprising line where Jesus says, Don't go into the way of Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. That's, that's kind of surprising because... We know that Matthew ends with 
go into all the nations, make disciples. We know that Matthew has a, a global focus, uh, certainly by the end. And Jesus has made statements in Matthew 8:11. He says, many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He says that when he's interacting with a Gentile. There's no doubt that Jesus fully expects that there would be a global scope to his discipleship ministry here. So it's a little surprising that he tells his disciples here, don't go the way of, of the Gentiles and don't even go in a city of the Samaritans. But I think it's consistent with a couple of principles. One, it's consistent with the, the Bible fairly consistently talks about the Jew first and then the Greek. Uh, in Romans 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that there's a priority, there's a fundamental priority that, that the scriptures minister through the Jews into the world. So that's, I think that's reasonable. There's also a little bit of an implicit warning in here. I won't talk too much about this, but Jesus is going to give Israel first chance, but then also implicit in that is full responsibility. The, the people of Israel cannot shrug off the, what Jesus' words and say, oh, we didn't really have a chance, or Jesus focused on somebody else. No, this is Israel's opportunity. This is the, the time where Israel has the full attention of Jesus and the disciples to communicate the truth of the gospel. But I'm going to give you six points here that we're, we're going to learn about very fundamental principles of discipleship. And my first point is that Jesus emphasizes a home-first ministry. Jesus emphasizes a home-first ministry. Jesus wants his disciples to start their ministry in Galilee. But they're from Galilee. They're all Galileans. He wants them to start there. He doesn't send them first to some faraway country. He wants them to start there. Discipleship, at its essence, is an inside-out endeavor. It's always been, and it always will be. You're supposed to do discipleship from the inside, starting with yourself, your own personal self, and, and have that flow out, God's, God's grace flow out from you into ever-larger circles. Every day, we need to ensure that we are rejoicing in God, that we are full of, of the Holy Spirit, that we have that time of, of the word and prayer, claiming our identity in Christ, seeking the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the, the people that I have a lot of admiration for is George Mueller. A lot of you know him. He was famous for being a very, very successful prayer warrior who did like all these amazing accomplishments. You should read his biography or autobiography if you haven't read it. And I'll read you a quote from his autobiography that I think nicely encapsulates this inside-out dimension. He says, It often now astonishes me that I did not sooner see this, and no book did I ever read about it. No public ministry ever brought the matter before me. No private intercourse with a brother stirred me up to this matter. And yet now, since God has taught me this point, it is plain to me as anything that the first thing the child of God has to do morning by morning is to obtain food for his inner person. Okay, so he says, like, you have no business leaving your home until you have given yourself food from, food from God for your inner person. Foundation of his prayer life, foundation of his, of his success was starting in that position. Uh, 
I will say that the vast majority of troubles that I see come from people breaking this fundamental pattern. They try to do ministry in outer circles before that inner dimension is filled, and it will always lead to, to lack and to, to ultimate depletion and failure. Okay, so the first circle is yourself. Then it's supposed to be your home, your family. In Ephesians 5, it says that husbands are supposed to wash their wives in the water of the word. Right? That's, a, that's an important mandate. Hopefully, we, we wash often. Hopefully, you wash your hands often. Hopefully, you bathe reasonably often. Um, I trust that that's the case. Uh, we, we want to be clean, right? We want to be people that aren't dirty and smelly. However much we think that is important in the physical world, it ought to be even more important in the spiritual world. And what, what Paul says here is that the job of the husband is to wash his wife in the water of the word. That is a, a tremendous mandate that we have. In same, same book, just a few verses later, Ephesians 6.4, Paul says to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of, the, of God, right, of the Lord. So huge there. Um, I, I pound the table on this. Those of you who know me know how important this is in my own life about just the priority of just a rich daily time with God every single day. Um, I, was, I was saying earlier that uh, I, I was in our family, we, we were going through the book of Galatians right now, and I had almost two hours this morning of just this feast in the book of Galatians. And I was like, I, I couldn't stop. I had to pry myself away to prepare this message because I was so overjoyed. And I just feel, I always feel this sense of like, I can conquer the world after my time in the morning there with God. I just feel such, a, such an embrace from God. And hey, we, we're supposed to spend time with the people we love, right? This is one of the most tangible ways that we can do that. Paul says in... In 1 Timothy, he says that if you don't provide for your own household, you're worse than an unbeliever. Now, the immediate context there is material, uh, material provisions, but how much more so, so, so is that true in spiritual provisions, right? If you don't provide for your own household, you're worse than an unbeliever. Okay, then out of that, time with the church. We did a Bible study two Fridays ago on this looking at Acts 2's paradigm uh, from that. And then out of that, time with the lost. And there, time with the lost, we don't start at some foreign country. We don't start at some faraway place. We start right where we're at right now. We start with Galilee in the case of the Gentiles. So hopefully you know where Galilee is. I won't draw it up on the board, but basically you can think of Israel in time of Jesus as having these three blocks, Galilee in the north, then Samaria, then Judea. And Galilee, to the north, is Gentile country. To the east is Gentile country on the other side of Galilee. And then to the west is the Mediterranean Sea. So they're in Galilee. So he's basically saying, don't go north. Don't go east, because there's Gentiles on both sides there. You can, obviously, they're not going to go into the ocean. Uh, and he says, don't even go south to Samaria. He's saying, you've got to stay right there. Now, that would have been potentially a temptation for them to go to Samaria. Jesus had success in Samaria. The, the woman at the well, and there's a whole community of people that came to know God through the woman at the well. But he's like, no, don't do that. You're just starting. You got to stay where you're at, right where you are in Galilee. And 
I think this is so important. You know, so often, I was recently talking to someone about this uh, who was interested to go abroad to a foreign country, and I always say, how many disciples have you made locally? And if you can't point to people in the church walking with God because of your ministry there, don't even dream, don't even think about going abroad to some other country. Another test for this is to say, can you imagine supporting this person to be a missionary right, right where they're at? Okay, so like, let's say someone says, okay, I want to be a missionary to, I don't know, uh, Brazil. Well, then you say, well, can I imagine, would we be excited about funding this person right now where they're at, where they're living in that locale? I think it's a good, a good common sense test that we should use. So Jesus here starts his disciples off and says, stay where you're at, stay put. <laughs> don't go north, don't go east, don't go south, stay where you're at. Stay where you're at and minister to, to your fellow Galileans. Okay, in verse 6, he says, But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, now hopefully, because we've been going through this in reasonably good pace recently, hopefully you can connect the word sheep here to what was a few verses before where Jesus has compassion on people because they are like sheep without a shepherd, Right? And so here again is what I mentioned before. Jesus is saying there's all these people that are lost, that are perishing. And he says, go there. The word for lost in Greek is the same as the word for perishing. So you could also say, go rather to the perishing sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, so now Jesus is going to prescribe in more detail. Now he's told them where to go. Okay, so giving them geographical boundaries of where they should go. Now what are they supposed to do? Okay, this is really neat, this next section here. All right, so my second point is that Jesus instructs his disciples to replicate his ministry. Okay, so my first point was Jesus emphasizes a home-first ministry. My second point is that Jesus instructs his disciples to replicate his ministry. All right, so watch this. Okay, so look at Matthew 10, and we're going to just flip, flip around in Matthew here. So I hope you can do this quickly, because it's, it's worth laying your eyes on this and seeing it for yourself. Okay, so... Uh, I already told you that uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 6 corresponds to Matthew 9, 36, where that's where Jesus looks at people like sheep without a shepherd. But chapter 10, verse 7, the next verse says, as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everyone sees that? Okay, so now what I want you to do is flip back and look at just, we're going to just do a little bit of flipping internal in Matthew. Look at Matthew 4, 17. So, Matthew 4, 17, Jesus is commencing his ministry, and it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so, Jesus started off his ministry by going around preaching about the kingdom of, God, the kingdom of heaven being at hand. Now he's telling his disciples to do that as well. Okay, now, look, look back at... Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. Okay, so Matthew 10, 8. What is he telling them to do in 10, 8? Heal the sick, cleanse Yeah. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Okay, so that should ring a bell. What, where did we just see this? All four of these events. Where did we just see this? Eight and nine. Thank you. Very good. So we just saw all of those in eight and nine. We saw him healing the sick, people like Peter's mother-in-law. We saw him cleansing lepers in the beginning of Matthew 8, raising the dead, Jairus' daughter, casting out demons, the, the, the gathering demoniac. 
All those four, he's saying, okay, I just did it in eight and nine. Now you're going to go do it. Okay, now let's look at verses nine to 10 of Matthew chapter 10. So there, what, what Jesus says, he basically says, go sparse. Your, your, your ministry here is not about having a lot of resources. It's going to be tough. You're going to be reliant on the generosity of others. Okay, now look back at Matthew chapter 8, verse 30. If you look, oh, sorry, uh, it's not 8.30. It is, it's an 8, but I copied the wrong verse. It is 8.20, sorry. In 8.20, he says, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus had already talked in that previous section about like, hey, I got a hard life. I don't, I don't have a hotel. I got no resources here. I'm, I'm basically walking around dependent on other people for my hospitality. Okay, and then in 1014, and this is going to be elaborated later on. Let's look at 1014. He says, whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. So he's signaling rejection. He's signaling opposition, I think pretty obviously there. Well, we saw that already as well. So if you look at, and this is an easy one, if you look at, Matthew chapter 9, verse 34. This is one of the early examples of Jesus being opposed. There was actually a couple of examples in Matthew 9. But uh, in Matthew 9, 34, the Pharisees criticize him and say he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. So there's, there's opposition, okay? So do you see how almost every, not almost every part, every part of this commission that he gives to the disciples is basically what he already did in the earlier part. It's a very beautiful uh, synthesis when you, when you see it like this. We're going to see this theme continue through the chapter. It makes sense because Jesus said in Matthew 4, follow me, right? That was his invitation. Follow me and I will make you uh, fishers of men. So he is elaborating on that concept and making it more concrete. Okay. My first point was Jesus emphasizes a home first ministry. My second point is that Jesus instructs his disciples to replicate his ministry. All right, my, my third point is going to be like so blindingly obvious, but sometimes the best points are obvious, I think. All right, so my third point is that Jesus's evangelism requires the disciples clear their calendars, <laughs> okay? So it's that he, he basically says, I want you to go on these like campaigns to these other places. You're going to, have to go stay. These are clearly like multi-day endeavors, right? This isn't like squeezing in an hour here or half an hour there. <clears throat> I, I'm going to say that this is so obvious and such a, such a, a blindingly obvious point that we, don't, we almost don't think about it and don't do it. <clears throat> when, when I was in college, I, I decided, I, I knew how important evangelism was. And I decided that I would lead a group of people. Every Friday night, we were going to go and do evangelism in Pasadena, which is where Caltech is. And we would do, I didn't know, uh, I didn't know nearly enough as I should, um, had a deficiency of training, but, but nonetheless was, was very zealous. And every Friday, we'd go out and do evangelism in various parts of, of Pasadena. And I had a, my best friend in college, his name was Daniel. He was a fellow pre-med. And Daniel and I, one day we're sitting around and we said, let's do something crazy. 
And I'm like, all right, let's do it. And he says, um, we were on the trimester system, so Sattler's on the semester system, which is a little more common. Semesters are two 14-week uh, terms. The trimester is three 10-week terms. It's a little bit longer than the semester system. So Caltech was on the trimester system. And, um, and so we decided what we were going to do for one of our trimesters is we were going to we were going to pray, we were going to see God, and ask that every single week for a whole trimester we would, we would lead someone to God. And, um, and so we're like, let's do it. And, and uh, both pre-med, so both busy. Uh, we both had lots of uh, responsibilities and had wanted to get good grades and all that. But what we did, and in, in hindsight, it, it, again, I wasn't even thinking about it, was we cleared out big blocks of time to go and spend like many hours just doing evangelism, praying, and and I, I remember one of the first experiences I had was like we're like okay we're gonna do this and, and intuitively we knew we just had to go spend these big blocks of time, and I remember going to the gym, walking around thinking all right we're asking for one soul a week can we can we pull this off can God pull this off through us, and I'm there kind of nervous thinking like where do I even start and out of the blue, this girl walks up to me bawling, just totally bawling, and said, and I knew who she was, uh, she knew who I was, we, didn't, we weren't good friends, but we knew each other's names, and she comes up to me bawling, says, Finney, you need to pray for me, I'm, I'm in a, a position of great spiritual need. I was like, okay. <laughs> um, and every single week for that, we led somebody to God. It was amazing. Um, and and I, I look back at that, at that season, and I think, wow, what was you know, what, what did God do there? What did he see in us that gave, gave us such favor? And I, I really do think that one of the biggest elements was this big block of time that we just said, we're going to put God above all things. We're going we're gonna to put God uh, and his kingdom and his interests ahead of others. So that was, that was a, real, a real shot in the arm for us, as you can imagine there. And you're tempted to think, you're tempted to think, all of you are thinking this right now, I'm sure. You're thinking, there's no way I could take off several days. Right? You're all thinking that. Um, the reality is, is you can. And you could if you wanted to. Because if somebody were to pass away and you had to go to some you know, funeral or if you had some event, or you, you could do it. Right? We, we totally could do it. The reality is, is that we just don't prioritize it. And I look back now and I think, wow, I am so glad. I have such fond memories of that trimester in particular. I could have done the same old thing and done class and you know just all that that everyone did, but what an opportunity would have been missed there. And now here I am, more than graduated '95, so more than 25 years later, I remember those days and weeks way better than I remember the specifics from my classes. We all we all can do it, and I would say that Jesus's model for evangelism is built on that. Okay. So that was my third point. Jesus' evangelism requires clearing out the calendar. I'm going to give a challenge here. I'm going to give a challenge here that, that, um, that you do something like this. And I'll, I'll give a little more specifics at the end. But to say, you know what? We're actually going to jump into this and not have it be just a nice up. We're actually going to clear out like a day, two, three days, something, and actually do this with our whole hearts. Okay. My fourth point is that Jesus' evangelism is relational and home-based. Jesus' evangelism is relational and home-based. Okay, so he says in, in uh, kind of 10 and 11, he says, a worker is worthy of his food. So notice how 
Some, tra- some translations say wages, but it's not wages, it's food in Greek. Uh, now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So Jesus wanted as his, his method, his strategy, was you go into this place and just picture yourself doing this. It's kind of, kind of an amazing thought experiment, right? Picture yourself walking into, I don't know, let's, let's, let's pick a let's Somerville, so not too far from Somerville, or Cambridge. You just show up there. You don't know a lot of people there. You're not. You're not. You're kind of acquainted with it. You're not from too far, and you start asking people who here would be willing to take us in. We're these disciples of Jesus. We have a message here. Who's going to take us in? And you try to get from the community a sense of who's respectable and who would do something like that. Jesus wants his disciples to be situated in the homes of people that are respectable and, and have some degree of repute there. And what he says is he wants them to, to stay there for an extended period of time, for as long as the campaign lasts, and, and, uh, and only leave if this home basically doesn't welcome you anymore. It's a little confusing the way that this is stated, but I'll, I'll just I'll first explain it in more common English here. So when he says a worker is worthy of his food, basically he's saying that when you go into these people's communities and homes, you don't have money, you don't have, you don't have resources here, the way that you're going to survive is by people showing hospitality to you and taking, into, taking you into their homes and feeding you, right? And so the strategy was basically one of of meal-based and looking for generous people who would be willing to pour into you. It's a fascinating strategy. It's a house that the, that the disciples could, could give it there, and they could also retract it. Um, it's very, very interesting. We, we had a great Thanksgiving this past Thursday. I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, we, had, uh, we had a bunch of church family. We had a couple of internationals over, which was very special. And uh, Malcolm made my day yesterday when he told me about how one of the internationals uh, responded when he drove him home uh, after the Thanksgiving there. It was, it was really, really great to, to see that. Um, I, as I was preparing this message, I thought, you know what? We have a lot of people into our home. Um, we're, we, we enjoy hosting. My wife is a great host. She's a great, very hospitable person. But as I, as I read this, I was like, wow, I think I'm actually, we've missed a dimension here which is what, what Jesus is, is having his disciples do is go into other people's homes, right? And so, look, we're doing a lot of hosting, but I'm not as much going into other people's homes and being the guest in other people's house. And then I started thinking about it. I was like, ah, oh, it's right there. He just did that. Jesus just did that in Matthew chapter 9 with Levi or Matthew. Remember how Levi basically has this, this party, this event, and Jesus is a guest there. And do you remember? And then I thought of more. I was like, oh, Zacchaeus. Do you remember how Zacchaeus is up in the tree? And Jesus goes up to him and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to stay at your house today. He's kind of almost forceful in the way that he does that. He doesn't even wait for an invitation. He's like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come stay with you, Zacchaeus, there. And it made me realize, maybe convicted, that I have been skewed away from that. And instead of 
always having people over to do it the other way. There's a lot of reasons and a lot of wisdom in that. Um, I think it, it, it breaks some of the traditional some of the traditional power imbalance that can exist, where if you're always the host, if you're the benefactor, you're the one that has the good stuff, as opposed to being in a more humble posture of receiving. And then, and then you know, seeing people in their homes is, is, is entirely a different matter than having someone in your own home. I'm not saying it's wrong to have people in your homes. I think you should do that as well. But I do think that there's something about Jesus' model here that we've, we need to recover. Okay. My, my fifth point is that Jesus' evangelism comes from a place of simplicity, dependency, and expectation for the miraculous. Okay, so Jesus' evangelism comes from a place of simplicity, dependency, and expectation for the miraculous. There's, there's some debate about exactly what Jesus means when he tells his disciples what they should be Taking, we, we looked at this passage in our Greek class last Tuesday. Sarah raised a lot of really good questions in our Greek class about what exactly the command was about. And is it like an extra or like, what, what is all that? We won't get into that now. And there is, there's a debate there. I have thoughts on that if you want to ask me later. But I think the overall point is clear that he wants them to be extremely lightweight. And the one that, that hit me is the one in verse 10 where it says, no bag for your journey. It's like, ooh, that would, that would be tough for me. No bag for the journey. Like, there's something about when you travel and you have a bag. I don't know. You just feel a sense of like, okay, I've got my, I got my nest egg here. I'm comfortable. I got my bag. I can keep my clothes in that. But can you imagine showing up at a place and no bag? I'm like, what? what? How, do you, how do you handle that? No bag. Um, that, would be, that would be tough. For me, it would be tough to do that. <clears throat> I would feel nervous. So imagine rolling into a place, you don't know the people there, you don't have a bag, you don't have provisions, and okay, and this is a time, of course, there's no cars, there's no buses, this is all on foot. You're walking long distances, a day or two, to get to a particular village or city. You have no bag, you have no provisions, you have no money. You'd be kind of nervous, and those of us who are planners, those of us who like to like, have it all mapped out, this would, this would be kind of terrifying, right? For, for those of us who have that, that phenotype. And I, I think about when, how Paul describes his, his experience when he goes to Corinth. You know, he, he goes in and he says, I came to you full of confidence and money and an ease that you would all listen. Is that what he says? <laughs> he says in 1 Corinthians 2.3, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. So Paul was shaking in his sandals. He's, he's, he's rolling up to Corinth and he's like, wow, like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know people here. Are they going to receive me? I don't know. I don't, I don't, he didn't have a strategy. He's like, I just don't know. And that, that would be a tremendous position to be praying a lot, right? If you're in that position, like I guarantee you, you're really going to be praying a lot. Please, God, I'm hungry. My, my belly's rumbling here. Let me find somebody who's going to give me a, a, a meal, I like how one author, his name is Lange, puts it. He says, Christ, itinerant preachers, the pilgrims lightly attired, carrying in their hearts the treasures of heaven, outwardly unburdened, inwardly laden with the greatest riches. So this picture of like not having much, of, uh, much outwardly, 
but having your heart full of this message and this mission and this burden that you want to deploy. The logic is also very clear what Jesus is saying. He's saying, okay, you disciples, you got your calling, you got your training, you got your gifting for me without any money. You didn't pay me a dime. I'm expecting that you don't charge others either. It would be very wrong for you to have gotten this gifting for me without money. And now you try to make a buck off of other people. He doesn't want that. I think of the story of Elisha and Gehazi and, and Naaman. If those of you remember that story where Naaman is miraculously healed. And, and Naaman's like, oh, I want to give you money. I'm so happy. He's overjoyed that he was cleansed of his leprosy. And Elisha says, no, I can't take it. I can't take it. He wanted, he wanted Naaman to feel indebted to God. He didn't want it to be this transactional relationship that it's very easy for religion to fall into. But of course, Gehazi seizes the opportunity and he's, he ultimately, of course, is, is cursed for that. So many, many lessons in this. Uh, Chrysostom commenting on this says that he, he's, Jesus is also trying to teach his, his disciples that they should only care about the necessaries of life, the necessities of life, and that to go beyond that is not the aspiration of Jesus' followers. And also that support for a person of God is not a generosity, but a responsibility. Okay, and so, so again, they're, they're in this position of simplicity and dependency, but we saw in this that Jesus also expects that there is going to be miracles that happen as they, as they uh, minister among this people. So it's very easy for people to kind of like be nervous about that and not... Kind of explain that away, but in verse 8, heal the, sick, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. And I'll just say, I think the, the real cause here for nervousness is, is, less, is less theologically grounded and more empirically or pragmatically grounded. That people are like, I don't see this, I haven't experienced this, does this make sense? And, but then, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we should also say that, are we really doing this? Um, and if we're not really doing this, is there, can, can there be an expectation? I will say uh, this was one of the joys of my youth was going with my dad a lot to India. And my dad will tell you so many stories about this. I've, I've uh, had the privilege of seeing a small fraction of what he's seeing. But there is a special grace that comes with people that go into new places with the explicit purpose of evangelism. And God just gives them a miraculous power that people don't otherwise have. And so it's, it's really, I think, unfair to brush away these, these miracles and say, like, oh, we don't see it, when, you haven't, when we haven't actually done what Jesus has actually told us to do. Uh, amazing, amazing stories that, um, that uh, we've had the privilege of seeing in India of people going in into completely Hindu areas, the blind... Uh, blind seeing and tremendous miracles there. So at least it's something that we should expectantly look for, not demand, but expectantly look for as we go into, into places like this. Okay, my final point here is that Jesus's evangelism attends to our discouragement. Jesus' evangelism attends to our discouragement. So I'll read all my points as I wrap up here. So Jesus emphasizes a home first ministry 
He instructs his disciples to replicate his ministry, number two. Number three, Jesus' evangelism requires clearing out your calendar. Jesus' evangelism is relational and home-based, particularly visiting others in their homes. Jesus' evangelism comes from a place of simplicity, dependency, and expectation for the miraculous. And then finally, my last point is that Jesus' evangelism attends to our discouragement. Okay, so when you, when you go, and again, try to picture yourself as one of these early disciples going off to some, some, some town, some city there in Galilee. And I, I think it's safe to say that you would have both an expectation of some openness, because Jesus is saying there's going to be this, this person who's going to welcome you in, and there's hopefully going to be people there who listen. But he's also saying... They may not, and you can retract your piece, and you can shake the dust off of your feet there. And it's very interesting. There's a ritual that he has them perform if they meet rejection. And that, that ritual is, I think, a really, really interesting one that when you first see it and, and hear about it, you think, like, what is going on here? He says in 14 and 15, whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. I think what, what this is supposed to tell the disciples as they're performing this, and I'm sure they had to do this multiple times, is to, to remind them that this is not, this is no, no um, practice exercise without meaning. That they are emissaries of a message with tremendous gravity and how people respond or don't respond to this is going to be their, their own salvation uh, is going to hinge on that. And importantly, the loser in this is not the disciple, but it's the people who rejected them. And I think it's very easy in evangelism when you get rejected to feel like, oh, what have I done? You feel bad about yourself and you feel like you've, you're hurt and you wasted your time. And, you know, it's, it's easy to, to go in that place. But this particular ritual that Jesus has them do is going to signal verbally and in a, in a physical way that, no, the loser is not the disciple. The loser is the, the person who did the rejecting. I want to I end here with just some, some final tips here that synthesizes a lot of this. This comes from an author named John Teeter who has some good tips as well on this. So these are hopefully wrapping up some of the, the points that I've made. His encouragements are, number one, to leave the office. You can't meet unbelievers behind the desk in your office or in school or wherever you might be. If you're in another type of work, you can't either. Think about the places where Paul goes. He goes into the Agora, the marketplace, to evangelize. He goes to the riverbank to evangelize. He goes to synagogues with those Jewish people to evangelize. Be available in community gathering spots. To put it on the calendar, that's what I was saying before. If you don't put relational evangelism on the calendar, it will be hard to make yourself available to meet new people. Be disciplined to schedule it and consider it an appointment with the Holy Spirit. I like that. Put that on your calendar. Consider it an appointment with the Holy Spirit. Three, go in twos. Matthew doesn't mention it here, but in the parallel accounts, we see that when Jesus does this, it's actually done in twos. When you go in twos, you have built-in accountability. It's very important. 
Like, if you don't have built-in accountability, it's very easy to let things slide. Uh, when you go in twos, you have built-in accountability, encouragement, and learning. Give each other feedback as you meet new people. Evangelism is better when we're together. Four, have confidence. When he was on trial, the Apostle Paul told King Felix and the entire Roman court, I wish you were all like me. If Paul walked into a Starbucks, he would be overflowing with confidence and concern toward lost sinners. He would not shrink back. We must live our lives like we've won the lottery because in the next dimension we have. And then number five, assume people are open. It's very easy to be cynical, to be jaded, and to think like, ah, what's the point? But Jesus has said right before this, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Uh, Elsewhere he says, open up your eyes and see the fields are wide unto harvest. So, I, I, I think this is fascinating that this is how Jesus begins his formal commission to his disciples. Um, he, he begins not actually even with lessons on the church or how to, get to, you know, how to work out those kinds of matters. That's going to come later. We're going to see that in Matthew 18 and other places. He begins with instruction on evangelism and going to preach the kingdom in, in Galilee there. So my hope is that we can put this into practice and have this not be mere words, but action. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we want to see you work in our lives. We know that the, the bottleneck is not, is not you, it's us. We pray that as we have just read from the master teacher, the one who promised his disciples, uh, as he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men or fishers of people, that he would that we would experience this, that we would see this as we step out in faith, as we step out in action to, to heed the words of Jesus, to, to be those who, who actually see and partake in the kingdom of God. May we not be those who, who shrink back, but see this indeed as, as the call of our life, uh, that this is, is really what it means when Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. I pray that you would give us a disposition to action, a disposition to obey, and not to merely pontificate. Pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.